Well, we've been continuing in our series on the Gospel of Matthew, and we are coming to a new section. We've had an introductory section of narratives about the coming of Jesus, and we've had a famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, and then we've had another section in chapters 8 and 9 when the deeds of Jesus have been proclaimed. And then in chapter 10, we had his famous Sermon on Mission. And as we've noticed many times before, there are five sermons in Matthew, in all uh, likelihood, to reflect the five books of Moses, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Uh, he is the new Moses. He is the new Jeremiah. He is the new David. Um, he is the new promised prophet of the book of uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, and he fulfills it in all kinds of magnificent ways. In the 1993 movie called The Lion King, which uh, some of us remember, I hope uh, you might uh, remember it or at least have heard of it, and if not, you'll get the, uh, the message. When I find it, it has gone hiding. Well, uh, Simba, here we go. The Lion King um, begins with Rafiki tracking down Simba. And Simba tells Rafiki to go away because uh, Rafiki doesn't even know who Simba is. But Rafiki replies, I sure do, you're Mustafa's boy. Simba replies, well, my father is dead. But Rafiki says, no, he is alive. And then Rafiki takes Simba on this wild, reckless chase through the woods, brings him to a small pond and instructs Simba to look into the water. Well, young Simba slowly does and says, well, that's not my father, that's just my reflection. Rafiki says, look harder. You see, he lives in you. I think Matthew, when he was composing that gospel, would have resonated with Simba's reaction and Rafiki's lesson every time he thought about Jesus, because over and over again, Matthew sees a characteristic of primarily God in the Old Testament, as we'll see later in our sermon today, and he sees God in the face of Jesus. He sees Moses in the face of Jesus, and he sees Elisha in the face of Jesus. He sees David in the face of Jesus. I remember as a young Old Testament scholar wondering where it was in the Old Testament that Jesus was the fulfillment. And I used to focus on individual verses like Isaiah 7:14 or Deuteronomy 8:15 or some of those classic passages which just seemed to shine a spotlight on Jesus. But I've since come to learn that it's more broad sweeping than that. Um, and you might say, well, I don't really see a whole lot of Jesus in the Old Testament. But think of what happens if you put green and red together. You get orange. Orange is a different color. But if you know the origin of orange, you know that it comes from red. Is it red and green? Red and yellow. There you go. Thank you. What do you get red and green from? Let me back up. It's red and Thank you, Marion. It's red and yellow that make orange. And as a result, you look back in the Old Testament, you see red and you see yellow, and you see in Jesus, orange. 
he fulfills the Old Testament in all kinds of ways. Well, in today's passage, that was one of John's problems. John had a certain understanding of who Jesus was going to be. It was clear to John that John was to pronounce doom and gloom, and then Jesus was going to come and wield the sword on behalf of God. But instead, Jesus comes and he first pronounces salvation to people, and he heals people. He raises the dead and does things that Elisha did, for example, and that uh, Isaiah prophesied David would do, and that Isaiah prophesied God would do. And so in the beginning of Matthew chapter 11, we come to a section where John the Baptist uh, sends a delegation to just sort of figure out what's going on with Jesus. And he asks him, is it you who's the coming one, or should we expect someone else? Well, you think, well, wait a minute, this is John the Baptist. This is a, a super prophet. How could he have gotten it wrong? Well, uh, think about it. And the, uh, the heading of my notes, I think, gives us a good idea about how that could just happen. It says, Jesus is out in the sticks, healing sick, insignificant little multitudes or little individuals, but not doing much to change the basic structural problems in Israel's life. The Pharisees still control popular religious life. The Sadducees still control the temple. The whole religio-ideological system seems thoroughly unthreatened by Jesus' do-goodism in the hills. And what's more, the liberator of the oppressed has still got John in prison. And Herod Antipas who is this evil ruler who you were hoping that the Messiah would crush is still on the throne and is in fact about to have John beheaded. So uh, John's question is one that is met with understanding on the part of Jesus. It's a genuine question. Is it you who is the coming one or should we expect someone else? Hindsight is 2020, isn't it? You look back and you see what God was doing in your life. But as you're looking ahead, some of us may be wondering, I don't think God is working in my life in the way that I understand. Uh, some people come to faith and they hope that when they come to faith that uh, this problem or this thorn in the flesh that they have will be relieved, and it's not. And that can lead to this thing called doubt. And I think that's one of the main lessons for today is um, on the whole theme of doubt. You know, it's interesting, if I were preaching this sermon any time before the Enlightenment, which happened in the 18th century, the 1700s, you would be hard-pressed to find any preacher who admitted that John the Baptist had doubt. Um, Calvin and uh, the early fathers all said that John did this as a way of strengthening the faith of his disciples. John had faith. He knew it was waning a little bit on the part of the disciples. So he kind of set up this ploy where I'll have my disciples go and ask Jesus if he's the coming one, and then Jesus will strengthen their faith as a result. Well, I think it was Matthew Henry who was one of the uh, first people um, out of the starting blocks of the Enlightenment who said, no, uh, John the Baptist was a doubter. Uh, can we think of another apostle who doubted? Doubting Thomas. At one point, he said, you guys, you've been duped. Unless I put my fingers in his hands 
and I thrust my hand, unless I put my fingers into the hole in his hands, unless I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, Jesus shows up and Jesus honors him. And then Jesus says to John, John, blessed are you because you have believed. Blessed are those who believed without having seen. And so even Jesus in the Gospels identifies with the notion of our doubt. So John doubts, and so do we. There's a hymn that we sang a few weeks ago, um, and no, no criticism to Jake, those are the words. I think it goes, uh, faith believes nor questions how. You know what hymn that is from? I always sort of uh, devilishly like to change the words, and I did it when I was singing. I was said, faith believes and questions how. And there's this idea that is very orthodox that, that, uh, that goes like this, that we are Christians who have faith and we're seeking understanding. And I think that doubt, although it's not itself a virtue, is certainly not a bad thing, necessarily, as long as we hang on to our faith. And doubt indicates that we're processing things. I remember one time um, a young man came to me uh, and he was just feeling terrible because of all of the doubt that he was having. And it was as though the more that he was doubting, the more God was going to go away. And I remembered what somebody had said about doubt that I found helpful, and that was this. Your doubting may make it seem to you like God is going away. But God is not going away in relation to your doubt. In other words, you could have all the doubt in the world, and God would be as real and as eternal as ever. And on the other hand, you could be as believing as you wanted, and that wouldn't make God any more real. So doubting is something that I think that we need always to do hand in hand with faith, uh, but that we shouldn't be too hard on ourselves when we uh, do have doubt. And goodness knows that since the Enlightenment in the 18th century, um, doubt um, is just part of everyday life. Life was a whole lot simpler in the belief and faith world prior to the 18th century. Or at the very least, the dynamics have changed and there are a whole lot more things up in the air now than there ever have been before. So what is the antidote to faith? Before we move on to the antidote to faith, and I should tell you that I've given you an outline. If you're wondering where I'm going, it's in the handout on page three, and it's in bold. And there's a lot in the notes as always that um, I won't refer to. And sometimes I put things in kind of an ad hoc way, which are more eloquently put in the notes, but I don't want to read you the notes. The theme of today is Jesus as the promised Messiah, five lessons from taking offense at Jesus. And I have used, if you want to just back up and take a look at uh, the page three of the handout, I have used um, my favorite commentators, a summary of uh, chapters 11 and 12. And so today we're talking about the first of six portraits of Jesus that can be found in chapters 11 and 12. We've gone again from the Sermon on Mission to more deeds of Jesus and more interactions with Jesus. And this disparate material is regarded as being held together by the fact that a number of people will come and doubt Jesus or a number of people will come and question Jesus. And so in the midst of the questioning and the opposition to Jesus, 
Matthew uses it as an occasion for us to learn more about who Jesus is. And so today, through John's opposition or questioning about whether Jesus is the Messiah, we learn more about Jesus' own understanding of the Messiah. And next week, we'll cover Jesus as the coming judge and Jesus as the present Savior. So we've begun by noting John's doubt and recognizing ours. And I think it's fair and helpful to recognize that nowadays, doubt comes with the territory. Uh, and the challenge is, I think, to recognize that surety is inevitable. I mean, after all, Jesus said, without God, without faith, it's impossible to please God. So um, I think if sometimes we only read Josh McDowell, we can sort of think that, okay, um, if you just have enough evidence, then everyone will become a Christian. And if I, if I can get the right arguments, then I will become a Christian. But faith has always been the name of the game. Because if it has to do with intellectual certainty, then it means that the smart people get in and the ignorant people or the less well-educated people are either duped or left out. So faith levels the playing field. And I think that's incredibly fair and incredibly just. But there's an antidote to faith and the antidote to, to uh, there's an antidote to doubt and the antidote to doubt is given by Jesus in verses three following and now we come to the second in our outline on page three of the handout Jesus's gospel response to doubt Jesus responds to John's doubt is it you who's the coming one or should we expect someone else Jesus answered them with the reply, verse 3 or verse 4, go and tell John what you hear and see. It's interesting that Matthew puts here uh, in front of see, whereas I believe it's in Luke where see is put in front of here. And it ought not to surprise us having heard two speeches by Jesus, the second one chapter long and the first one three chapters long, that John emphasizes the speech of Jesus, the words of Jesus, and also the deeds of Jesus. We're now in the third block of deeds. And here's the deal. Doubt is dispelled when we talk about Jesus and his teachings and we proclaim his words and deeds. It's like a tool that the church has for proclaiming the gospel and seeing people come to faith. And so week by week, the preacher, uh, aware of his or her inadequacy, comes to the pulpit believing that God's Holy Spirit is going to work and bring people to faith when the preacher talks about the words and the deeds of Jesus. And that's the trick. Bruner has said this, our churches need faith. We need faith and the world needs faith. The way to receive and bring this faith is to make audible and visible the words and deeds of Jesus, to hear what Jesus says, and to see what Jesus does. As Paul said in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the preaching of Christ. Article 5 of the Augsburg Confession, one of the famous confessions that came in the period of the Protestant Reformation, addresses the question about how one becomes a follower of Jesus and how one comes to believe in him as the Savior. And the Augsburg Confession, Article 5, says this, to obtain this faith, 
God instituted the ministry. That is, he provided the gospel and the sacraments by which, as through means, he gives the Holy Spirit who works faith when and where he pleases in those who hear the gospel. Uh, those of you who are apologists, and I know that we have at least one official one in the crowd in the person of uh, Logan, uh, I think would do well to hear the dictum, which I think I heard um, from Brian Walsh. Don't fight the darkness, let in the light. And when we proclaim the words and the teachings of Jesus, we let in the light. And so this is how Jesus responds to John. He says, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. And then Jesus takes a portion of scripture from Isaiah, referring to the Bible as a good way to proclaim the gospel, proclaim the word of God, because the word of God points to Jesus. And Jesus says in verse five, the blind receive light, sight, the lame walk, lepers are clean, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor receive good news. Friends, Jesus backed up what he said, and he backed up the claims about who he was by raising the dead, by healing the sick, by saying things that were incredibly profound. And here Jesus underscores that for John as a way of assuring him and uh, by inference as a way of, of assuring us as a reminder of the fact that Jesus really came into the world and he did these things and he taught these things. I mean, we know what prison John was in. He was in a prison called Machaerus on the east side of the Dead Sea, and it's still there to this day if we take the words of Josephus uh, for what uh, they are probably worth. Uh, you can go there and you can, you can see it. We learned last week that one of, the, uh, one of the tenets that everybody in the Jesus Seminar holds is that John the Baptist uh, existed and that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Remember John who was doubting? even said like, are you sure I should be baptizing you? Um, he was an inquisitive believer. And that's kind of the model uh, that I think we can follow as well. My friends, week by week, I want to uh, encourage you to come and hear the word of God proclaimed, to read scripture. And I'm happy to share the news with you today that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that he came into the world to save sinners. And his teachings are revolutionary and life-giving. And his deeds and his acts back up his claim that he was nothing less than God. Can you raise the dead? Uh, can you heal a severed spinal cord? Can you forgive sins? Jesus can. And he made those audacious claims by backing it up by healing people. Even his opponents didn't deny that he performed miracles. They said he was a magician or he was a wizard and he was doing it by evil means. Now we come to verse six and with verse six, I have it underlined because I think it's crucial. It's Jesus's lone beatitude and it comes in commendation of not taking offense at Jesus. Jesus wonderfully turns what could have been a criticism of John the Baptist into a beatitude. He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I suppose there are lots of people, at least some people, who are offended by Jesus. 
in my experience, there are more people who are offended by the followers of Jesus and who will leave the faith and leave church and leave their faith lives behind because they had a minister who um, turned out to be duplicitous or fickle or a hypocrite or fall into some kind of sin. And they say, oh, enough of that Christianity. My, uh, my pastor was a hypocrite. I'm leaving the faith. Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. I think it's pretty hard to take offense at Jesus, but some people do. I got to tell you, it's true. Jesus claimed that he was the only way to the Father. He said, no one comes to the Father except by me. Well, what an audacious claim. I mean, what kind of a person would say that? I mean, the only kind of person that I would believe who would say such an audacious thing would be somebody who claimed to be God and who said he came from God and who forgave sins and raised the dead. In other words, consider the source. And I think we have to admit that that's a really hard saying. But that's exactly what we would expect from somebody who makes the claims that Jesus makes of himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That doesn't mean that good knowledge is imparted to people of different faiths. There's a thing called general revelation. God uh, dispenses wisdom. Um, I've heard of Japanese Buddhists, for example, who believe in salvation by grace, and apparently they're some of the most wonderful Buddhists on the planet. Um, they believe that you get to the pure land by faith in Amida Buddha. That's not enough, but it's close, and you can see a difference in people's lives as a result. So, my friends, the important thing, and a theme, in fact, of the next two chapters, and that's why I've underlined it, is Matthew implicitly says through Jesus again and again, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I wonder if you know of someone, or maybe you yourself, are struggling in your faith because uh, someone who you looked up to as a role model disappointed you. If you step back from your faith as a result of that, you are putting an awful lot of power into the hands of a person who doesn't deserve it. You're risking putting your eternal destiny in the hands of a mere human being who uh, occasioned disappointment. Don't empower someone who fell into sin with your own eternal destiny. I like a saying that I've heard and that I believe because of the context that I've had with many Jewish friends. And I think it was a, a Jewish friend when I was in graduate school who observed, he said, you know, when, when you Christians doubt God or become disillusioned, you leave church. I find that very curious, my Jewish friend said. He said, you know, when we become disillusioned with God, we turn to God and say, I have no idea what you're doing. I can't understand what you're doing. Um, or they become disillusioned with the congregation. You know, they say, Lord, the chosen people are full of fault. What are we going to do? In other words, you, you, you embrace, uh, continue to embrace God in the midst of your uh, taking offense because uh, where can we go other than to the, other to the arms of a savior? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The lone beatitude, and I want to commend and through Jesus, uh, you for not taking offense at the times when you were offended, at the times when you continue to read the Gospels and you don't understand what Jesus is saying, or you read the Old Testament and you can't understand why that happened. 
Blessed is the one who does not take offense at me, says Jesus. And then I've summarized the rest of the passage more succinctly by uh, talking about reasons not to take offense in verses 7 to 17. In verse 7 following, Jesus talks behind John's back. This is another reason to follow Jesus. Jesus is one of the few people who you will find who talks good about other people when the person leaves. You know, the disciples wander away, and uh, John has just sort of flubbed it. His disciples have said something embarrassing. Jesus could have been embarrassed. Jesus could have said, oh, man, you'd expect more faith from that John guy, wouldn't you? I mean, you know, uh, he knew that I was going to be endowed with the Holy Spirit. But instead, John talks good behind Jesus' back. And that's one of the reasons why I think we can love Jesus. And Jesus actually turns to the crowd and reminds them about John and says, you know, it was a couple hundred years before you ever had a prophet. Do you remember why you went out to hear him? It wasn't to see the scenery in the desert. It wasn't to see reeds blown by the wind, was it? Or did you go out to see some kind of, a, a, you know, a fashion show, some kind of a rock star, somebody who was going to set a new fashion trend? No. Uh, the guy's taste in clothing was pretty bad, actually. And then he goes and he reminds them why they actually came. And he said, you went to see a prophet. And yes, I tell you, one superior to a prophet. Now, in the words, one is superior to a prophet, Jesus is, is, is having his cake and eating it too. He's extolling John the Baptist on the one hand, but he's also drawing attention to himself as the source of life eternal on the other. He says, I tell you, John was one superior to any other prophet because John was the next to the last prophet. He was the guy who was the last one before the door of the um, acceleration of the kingdom, which came with the ministry of Jesus. And so Jesus is extolling John the Baptist and honoring John the Baptist. And so as we're reading that verse, we're inclined to say, well, um, gosh, John the Baptist was a superior prophet. He was next to the most important prophet of all. I wonder who the most important prophet of all was. And that takes us into the realm of Jesus. And Jesus says as much in verse 10, when he says, this is the one about whom it is written. And he's speaking about John, but he's also pointing to himself something that John would have been very happy with because John was always happy to point with Jesus, point to Jesus. It says in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Actually, if you look at the footnote, and this is important, Malachi 3, 1 actually says, uh, footnote 9 on page, on the handout on page 2, Behold, I, the Lord, am sending my messenger before my face. So Malachi, whose name means my messenger, says that God is saying, Behold, I'm sending my messenger, an Elijah figure, before my face. But here, the gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, relying on a source that scholars probably reconstruct as a thing called Q. The wording has been changed by virtue of um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the parallel passage which, which Malachi 3.1 is paired in Exodus. 
But the important thing is that Jesus has substituted the reference to the Lord with himself. Uh, if you can just bear with me in looking at footnote 9, I've got it quite succinctly there. Uh, the primary reference is to Malachi 3.1, likely inspired by the wording of Exodus 23.20. Jesus and the gospel writers unashamedly, unashamedly interchange Jesus for God in their rendition. Behold, I, the Lord, am sending my messenger before your face, the face of Jesus, who will prepare your way, the way of Jesus, before you. France states, and I have it in bold, Jesus' application of this text implies that his own coming is the coming of God himself. Jesus, my friends, is God incarnate. Jesus is God having come into the world as the one that John the Baptist pointed to. And Jesus is God's messenger. And John prepared the way for a greater prophet, one even greater than the greatest of prophets who would come and reveal the will and the way of God. That's why Jesus can say in verse 11, now that the kingdom has come in him, there has not arisen anyone born of women, one greater than John the baptizer, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the baptizer until now, the kingdom of heaven is subjected to violence and violent men grasp it forcibly. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until now, and if you wish to accept it, he is Elijah, the one about to come. It's pretty thick going, which is why Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him listen. What Jesus is saying is that he has inaugurated a kingdom that means that those who are in the kingdom under the umbrella of Jesus's salvation and reign are part of this new era, which is so exciting and so forgiving and so joy-filled and so uh, filled with healing that um, we're better off even than John the Baptist. It's not that John the Baptist wasn't in the kingdom, but it's that with Jesus comes an accentuation and an acceleration of the kingdom so that anybody who's in this new zone um, is incredibly blessed. My friends, doubt comes as part of the territory. The response to doubt is that of the gospel. Jesus commends us and John for not taking offense at him. And I believe you could extend that to others who, uh, as members of the church, have given uh, you offense, rightly so. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. And then among the reasons not to take offense, look at Jesus, look at his words, look at his deeds. He treats John so graciously. He points to himself as the messenger of God. And he comes to die for you and for me. And he comes to give us life eternal. You know, with a savior like that and a program like that, you don't want to miss out. But John, Matthew's parting shot to us as he comes to verses 16 through 19 is there's something within us that risks miss, missing out. Jesus compares the generation that he's speaking to, to children sitting in the marketplace who call out to others saying, verse 17, 
We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. Jesus is saying, man, you guys are hard to please. Here John comes and he's somber and he's dour and he's preaching doom and gloom and you sort of say, oh, we don't like him. I think he has a demon. I come along and I am full of joy and happiness and I'm the Lord of the dance. And you sort of say, oh, we're not sure we like that either. We love to find excuses to put God at arm's length. Jesus says, wow, you know, either way you're being hard. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a gluttonous and drunken fellow, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet finally, and with this I close, comes verse 19b. Yet vindication comes by deeds of wisdom. I've underlined deeds of wisdom because the chapter, the, the pericope began, verse 2 began, with the deeds of Christ. And here implicitly, Matthew, and you can see this over and over again in his gospel, is equating Jesus with the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God sheds light and is illuminating and life-giving. And Jesus is saying, in effect, yes, there's something that's with, that, with, that is within you that wants to reject me, but I'll tell you, my words and my deeds speak for themselves. And they're vindicated because I'm the incarnation of divine wisdom. I lament the fact that people don't hear today. Children are growing up without ever hearing of Jesus. And so the church, uh, which is you and I, need to be bold in our witness to the wonderful message of Jesus and his saving love. Jesus came that we might have life and that we might have life eternal. Blessed are those who do not take offense at this one. Amen.